Wow, that's good to have the choir back together, isn't it? That's wonderful. Great job, folks. Gerald, thank you for that. Putting that all together. They practice on Wednesday nights, by the way, 8 till 9. Not quite 9. I want to thank, too, uh, Gene Coleman and Susan for uh, presenting this ministry to us. And uh, good to have you with us again. And I understand, you know, your, your uh, struggle with basketball. And uh, similarly, Pastor Weiler has a struggle with football. Um, but we'll talk about that the next Super Sunday. Well, folks, I, uh, I hope that this reaches you. It, uh, it's a really big theme, global missions. I mean, what do, you, what do you talk about? There's so many places you could go, uh, topics you could bring up, strategies, locations, um, purposes of ministries, building the church, as Gene spoke about, planting healthy churches is a great place to start, but I, I, there's so many directions I could have gone with this. be honest, I, I just finished this up this morning, just trying to draw it together as a topical message about global missions, what we should be doing, and uh, what our, our uh, strategy might be going forward. This will bring some principles for you. Uh, again, as I said, over the last three weeks, uh, it's been kind of thematic. We're talking about the local church, the membership, being a productive member of a church, and uh, then there was a progression to uh, zeal for outreach. We looked at Thessalonica and how the word sounded forth to the north and to the south uh, out of Thessalonica. And uh, today we're going to talk about revitalizing global missions, our look uh, towards it, our, our purpose in it, and, and our participation as well, and how we participate in global missions as a church, as individuals. And... Uh, when we look at Philippi, as we read earlier, they're, they're really concerned about missions. They're a missions-focused church. In, in fact, that church uh, became uh, an important part of the church that was founded in Thessalonica. That we talked about the word sounded forth from Thessalonica. Well, Philippi, their commitment to that uh, led to Paul being able to minister there. In Philippians 4.15 we read, You yourselves also know Philippians... That at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, this is while Paul was in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And of course, later we'll see that was abundantly met. Abundantly met. And as Paul was laboring to establish and strengthen that church in Thessalonica, the Philippians were supporting him as a missionary. In fact, they were the only church, at least at this time period, they were the only church that was financially supporting him uh, in that region, and he commended them for doing so. That's a good work you're doing, an, a fragrant aroma. And uh, the progression of my messages has been purposeful, as I mentioned. Uh, if you don't have a local church that's committed to one another's as a body, as members of a body, how are you going to do outreach? How are you going to have the unity to, to reach the community around you? Uh, we studied that two weeks ago. It's going to be virtually impossible to be a testimony to those living around us if we aren't uh, a body of members united to one another. Uh, Jesus laid down uh, this principle of, of division, how it's destructive, as he is confronted by the Pharisees. He said this 
Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Matthew 12, 25. It can't stand. And uh, everyone recognizes this principle. Whether it's families or nations, uh, it's, it's part of the reason that the Christians were so persecuted. Uh, the early Christians in Rome, by Caesar, by the way, it, it really isn't as much they worship Christ. That wasn't the issue. They wouldn't worship the false gods or Caesar. That's what got to be the problem. They, they would not conform to the world around them. They became a threat of division. The Roman government was afraid that if this sect took off, that they'd no longer have the loyalty that they needed to maintain the kingdom, the Roman Empire. That was the threat that they saw. And it, because a divided people can't stand. A divided people cannot stand. Uh, when the Apostle Paul was on trial by the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, many were, were, were trying to get at him and uh, to prosecute him, to persecute him. And he sensed that the testimony wasn't going his way. So this is not going well for me. What did he do? Does anybody remember with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What he did is he divided those who were attempting to discredit him and persecute him. Acts 23.7, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided. They were divided over the resurrection, right? The Pharisees accepted it. The Sadducees did not. They were divided. And, and, and there was such, uh, such a schism between those two that, that just by a narrow bit, Paul was able to slip out of there. So uh, he escaped their clutches because division. They couldn't be unified. It's no different with the household of God. Division destroys a church. That's why Satan is always seeking a way to divide. We need to recognize uh, division for what it is. It's an attack from the enemy as we talked about Corinthians, the Corinthians. Uh, Satan knows if he can get a congregation to turn against itself, they're going to be ineffective to reach anybody else. They'll always be concentrated about one another. Uh, they'll be ineffective in reaching the community. So there has been a pre progression in theme. The existence of membership, essential. Unified membership, essential. Ultimately, our global impact is going to be a reflection of all of those. Our devotion to grow here locally, it's going to have a direct impact on what is done overseas and globally because as the Lord so wills, as our numbers grow, our diversity and our pool of talent grows, our opportunities to, ministry, uh, to minister grow, and our budget grows to do more things for the Lord. So uh, the health, what I'm trying to, trying to drive home is the health of the local church will directly impact what we can do overseas. We have to solidify our base. Um, I would like to illustrate global missions using three different churches today. First, Antioch. If you remember Antioch. Philippi is another, which we just read. And the city of Corinth, the church that was in Corinth. And, and we looked at the local and regional influence of Thessalonica last week. This week I'd like us to think just global impact. What can we do for global impact? And we're going to look at Antioch, uh, Philippi, and Corinth. And uh, I'd like you to know beforehand, these are going to be very broad principles. This is a very broad topical message. Uh, it's not necessary to get bogged down in the details at this point. But the question has been asked. It's been poised on different occasions. Once the mortgage gets paid off, once the budget gets in a little better shape, well, then what do we do? Do we just come to church on Sunday? Is that the only reason we're here? 
It is a reason we're here to worship. But what are we going to do? What is God calling us as a congregation to do? And the board, I'll assure you, at this point has not made any concrete plans. Yet we're praying. We're praying. And today what we look at might be some good suggestions as we move forward. They're certainly not the only options. Certainly not the only options. You decide whether they accurately represent Scripture as we look today. First, there's Antioch. Antioch... uh, was a healthy church. A healthy church ought to be a sending church. Wondering what sending church is. Well, let me tell you what a sending church is. That means the missions originate from that church. They send people out. Uh, We train and send our own people to evangelize, disciple, supply relief, plant churches. Uh, The majority of churches in America never reach that threshold. It's amazing that they never send out their own people into into the mission field. Few churches do that. Um, The the church in Antioch did. They did send out their own people that they trained. And uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they were committed members of the church in Antioch. I mentioned that two weeks ago. They spent a considerable amount of time there in Acts chapter 11. And when the news of a famine approached in Jerusalem... A prophecy came, there's going to be a famine. Antioch created a relief fund for that church down in Jerusalem in the region of Judea as they were going to suffer. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 29. It says, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. That means they took it to the elders in Jerusalem. Sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul. So Saul, who we know became later known as the Apostle Paul, is who we're talking about here. Uh, Saul and Barnabas were sent out by their local church for a task. This would have been like a short-term mission trip, if you want to look at it that way. They were a delegation that was going to carry financial relief to the church down in Jerusalem. There were going to be suffering Christians there, They delivered the relief. They were a delegation. And then they returned. They returned to their home church, Acts 12.25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So you see John Mark uh, come into the picture here. They fulfilled their mission. They returned to Antioch. Some versions translate mission as ministry or service. That is correct. So so I'd like you to note here that Paul and Barnabas' first mission, their first mission, was a relief mission to another church. It was a short-term mission, and uh, uh, they went and helped those who were impoverished in Jerusalem. Fair enough? Sometime later then, in Acts 13, through the testimony provided by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas were sent out again from their home church in Antioch, while those leaders there were ministering, Acts 13.2, if you wanted to reference that, ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. We know the story there it began as the first missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas. 
And you probably remember that we studied in depth the laying on of hands by the presbytery, or the elder board we call it today. We studied that back in First Timothy. And we determined that ordination, you know, it's not a mystical force that you, you shock people with. Laying on of hands isn't long. We're going to shock people today and maybe they'll get an extra portion of the Spirit. We learned that is not accurate. Uh, the laying on of hands by the elders is an acknowledgement and a recognition given by the local church, provided by the local assembly, that uh, through the leadership, the presbytery, that the Holy Spirit has gifted certain people and set them apart for a ministry, for a mission. It's a calling by God and uh, uh, affirmed by the home church. That would be their sending church. And uh, acknowledged by their home church. And, and we call it an ordination. Sometimes it's called a commissioning. And uh, as a missionary, any, any actually missionary here that we consider or a pastor that we would hire, we would want them to have been ordained or commissioned by their home church. They need to have a home church where someone there in the body of Christ recognized what their gifted was, giftedness was. They identified through service, years of service, their commitment to the gospel. They're willing to suffer through things. Um, and and they, their church sends them out on a, on a mission of one kind or another. And uh, their calling has to be confirmed. You, you have to be cautious. We talked about that, and I'm not going to go into detail. But you've got a whole lot of quote-unquote missionaries out there going around, getting money place to place, who've never had a sending church. Never had any community of believers say, yep, we think you're gifted in that, and sent them out. No, there, there's a lot of different things going on today, so we are cautious. You know, as people approach me as a missionary, or other things, really, one of the first questions I ask them, who is your sending church? Who has found you uh, uh, reliable and trustworthy? Who laid hands on you? Where are you a member of a local church. Uh, where, what, where can I call to find out something about you as you're coming through town? Uh, who has recognized the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Who endorses you? You know, their attitude and their response will really tell you a lot spiritually. A whole lot. In just 30 seconds, you'll find out a lot. Um, some church should have sent them out. Gene and Susan Coleman, right here. Northside Baptist Church, St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Florida. Um, Kim Hibbard, uh, Bible Baptist Church, Fort Pierce. There should have been a church that sent them out. And um, Antioch sent missionaries out. They sent out their own people. God willing, as our budget improves, we should be identifying, training, encouraging our own people who line up doctrinally with us and with the purpose of this church, who we know personally, who we endorse, who we've worked with and served with, Missionaries who, personally, they'd, they'd add a lot of enthusiasm. People we know, personally, over a long period of time, that adds a lot of enthusiasm. And uh, uh, to be honest, as we talk about revitalizing our missions, membership doesn't generally, any church membership, doesn't generally remain excited about missionaries that they met once several years ago and never returned. Hard to remain excited about that um, once, they've, once they've left. And uh, Paul and Barnabas, they repeatedly to re- return to Antioch to give uh, updates on their progress in the mission field. So Antioch was their sending church, which translates us nicely, transitions us nicely to the church in Philippi. 
You know, uh, the Philippians, they were excited about their missionary. They were concerned about their missionary. Paul had worked in establishing churches in the region of Macedonia. Uh, That's where Philippi is located. And we read earlier that the uh, Macedonians sacrificed to keep Paul in the field. And uh, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Revival. We talked about that last week. Different revival. Revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity, he says. And in verse 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And then Paul adds this, not that I seek the gift itself, But I seek the profit which increases to your account. That's what he was seeking. You see, the the Apostle Paul and the church in Philippi, they had a mutual concern for one another. They were worried about one another. Uh, The love and devotion, it was reciprocal between the two. They knew who each other was or were. And and there there came a season where the opportunity to help Paul lacked. We don't know why. There was a season they had concern. They didn't have uh, the opportunity. Nonetheless, at last, they revived, they revitalized their concern for Paul. They revived it. And and they revived it in a big way, sending money more than once. We see in verse 18 to where Paul glorifies God. He says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And he adds this, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's good. They amply supplied the needs that Paul had. They had concern for Paul. Paul had a concern for them. They met his need. He didn't seek the gift. He was a missionary. They met his need. Paul sought the prophets to their account that were, would be waiting for them in heaven as they stored up treasure in heaven. Not in earthen vessels, but not only heaven. Paul, then the apostle, was so grateful for, for their ministry and their generosity that he prayed to God to continue to supply their every need according to his abundance and riches, even while they're on earth. They're praying for one another. They know one another's needs. They're concerned about one another. It's an ongoing relationship. This demonstrates that mutual concern. There is intimacy We need to revive that in our church. Intimacy. They prayed for one another. They knew one another's names. They knew their children's names. They knew their struggles, their medical conditions. As we look at missions and revitalizing ours, how things are done, these are some things to consider uh, for executing international missions, as we look today, for execution uh, of, of uh, that work, I'm going to give you what I consider the weakest school of thought first. This will be the weakest, in my opinion. It isn't an approach that is overtly wrong in any way, 
but I also don't think it's particularly strong in how it works, um, either for the missionary itself or for the local church. This approach may be compared to uh, what some people say in a, uh, a money market portfolio. Ever seen one of those? I had to do some, some research this morning late on Investopedia. Don't know where that came from, but I, I don't know a lot about this stuff, so, so I'm going to find out some about it. Um, I went to Investopedia and gathered some information here. There is what's called a low-risk, low-reward money market fund designed specifically not to lose your principal investment. Everybody familiar with that? Real safe, real cautious. And, and it is a highly diversified fund across many different investments, right? Sometimes you'll get these prospectus or prospecti. I don't know what's right there. What is it, Ruth? Um, she's always my default. Uh, you might have seen some of these before. And, it, and they get, it's like a book and it's diversified across hundreds of investments. Two-tenths of a percent here, five-tenths of a percent over there and these different funds all over the place. And uh, if an investor is looking over this type of portfolio, sees all these lines one after another, how concerned do you think they are individually about each one of those lines? Not very, right? I mean, it's two-tenths of a percent of my portfolio over there. They are concerned about the overall, but as far as being really intimately concerned about that one performer, probably not as much. Uh, How how worried are they about that one flourishing? Not so much. They aren't lying awake at night wondering whether that one little small part. They're looking at, at the whole, and that's good. Especially if you're late in retirement, I understand that's good. Um, but some churches take a similar approach with missions. And let me explain. Uh, whenever one comes through town, potentially, whether they know where the person originates from or the family originates from, or whether they don't, they come through, they have a story, they invite them to present their ministry. And, and if the work looks at all appealing, you know, they, they, they just decide to take a picture, put it on the wall, they got a whole wall filled with pictures back and forth, and, uh, and uh, lots, of, lots of people there. But generally with this approach, with a, midgen, with a missions budget, there, there's a little bit divided amongst a whole bunch. Maybe $10 a month here, $20 a month there, 25 maybe here, and you're just like, you know, we're just going to diversify across a whole bunch of people and give them a little bit each. Um, that's... That's one way of looking at it. You know, the hope is that the pictures on the wall will provide excitement. You know, you walk in, boy, this, this really looks like an active church in missions. Um, the challenge is that, let's say that missionary came from Tennessee. They came from up east. They came from Texas and came through town as they were doing their initial fundraising. And um, they're gathering their support across 13 different states. If they only get $20 a month from a local church that's far away from home, when they come back again out of the mission field to their home-sending church, and, and the other church is 800 or 1,000 miles away, how often can they get back there? If they're getting $20 a month and $240 a year, and they come back every third year and they live 800 miles away, how often can they actually afford to travel back and update, get to know people, encourage them? Those are some of the challenges in that model. Uh, their gas would be burned up. You know, so they're always chasing around while they're, while they're on leave. Actually, there was, a, um, there was some people I knew from my previous church 
Good, good folks. Been working missions in Mexico for a very long time. They got a wanna down there and all kinds of things. And he called me knowing that, that I had been down here, I think at that time, about nine months, nine months or a year, and he asked if he could travel out here and present to our congregation to try to get support. And uh, I know he's a great guy doing good work. I'm like, no, that's, that's not where we're at right now. Uh, I realized the way they're structured. I knew him back at Denton Bible that most of his support was in North Texas and, and uh, my previous church, and he wasn't going to get back here again. You're just not going to be able to afford to get back here regularly. So uh, I said, you know, I apologize, but I said, I just don't think it's where we're at right now, and it really wasn't financially or, or mission-wise where we were either. Um, in general, not all the time, but in general, a missionary that receives $20 a month $20 a month, hasn't re- returned for perhaps five or seven years. Uh, they're in Africa. There are maybe 38 other pictures on the wall. Who knows? How much prayer, contact, and interaction are you going to have with that? Generally. No, there are exceptions. There are always exceptions. Generally, not a lot. Um, I would say not enough. Let's put it that way. And... Uh, that's nothing like we see with the Philippians. At the Philippians, their approach, I might compare to an aggressive growth strategy. You ever heard of those? These guys, they're invested big in a small number of very high-value investments, right? And uh, they do their homework. They study the people they're working with. They have their investments uh, that, that uh, they're, they're always thinking about. They're probably praying about them. Even on Wall Street, they're probably praying to somebody about them. They watch them closely. They're concerned about how they're doing. How are they performing? Are they well? Are those investments healthy? They pray for them probably by name because maybe they only have four. Perhaps they only have four names to remember and they're staying in contact with those specifically. They're very concerned about those four. You follow the parallel? The parallel there, that view of mission says, I know who my people are. I know them intimately. I know where they came from. A couple of them came out of our youth group over the years. We sent them out. uh, Probably uh, encouraged them through Bible college, one form or another. We laid hands on them. There are people, we sent them out into the mission field, and we're hanging with them. We know them. They're ours. We give a significant amount of money. Meet some of their needs. They're also praying for us. They know who we are. They understand our needs. They want to hear about how our church is doing. And when they come back to the uh, to the states for leave, they're coming here. They're coming here because it's a high value relationship. They're incur- uh, they're going to encourage us. They're going to give us updates, and uh, we're going to encourage them. And there's going to be a really intimate relationship with a high-value missionary. Um, Not that any have more value than others. That's not what I'm implying here. This is just an approach um, to missions. Many churches have begun to embrace this high-value model. Parkside Church, you might have heard of that. Alistair Begg is there. They used to have a whole bunch of missionaries that they sent out. Just couldn't keep track of prayer needs and everything else. Um, and, And they transitioned over a long period of time to, if I understand it right now, they simply send out a small number of missionaries full support. Full support. They pay the entire support. They're a large church. 
And when those people come back on leave to rest, their missionaries actually get to rest. It doesn't happen with most missionaries. They come back and they're supposed to have six months off, you know, every fifth year, depend upon their mission sending agency. And they come back, hopefully to catch up on a rest, and they're running point A to point B to point C to point other, just to try to keep a base of support up. You see the difference there. Um, the, uh, Parkside Church provides near full uh, support for a small few, but when the missionaries return, they actually get that intimate time to spend with them and to know who they are. Um, if it's a smaller number of missionaries, uh, it's harder to do. Or I mean, uh, a larger number of missionaries is much harder to do. And um, when a church such as that uses a model similar to that or some, some variance of that type of model of outreach, um, especially if it's condensed in a very small area of the world, let's say Europe. Let's say they have a small number of missionaries in Europe. It provides an opportunity to send their own delegation from their own church to a region on occasion from time to time to encourage their own people in the field. They actually set up short-term missions trips to go over and help those that they know. Whether there's a vacation Bible school going on over there in the summer or whatever they can unite to, they, um, they pair up and uh, they'll go over there and serve and they'll, and they'll come back and they'll give the entire church, you should see, we've got a slideshow. You've got to see what these people are doing over there. And uh, that's what Epaphroditus did. He carried uh, the gift. He handed it directly to Paul. Looked Paul in the eye. Had personal contacts uh, with him. And uh, Paul sent numerous, as we know, ambassadors to different churches over time. Titus and Tychicus and, and, and all kinds to, to Colossae. It says in Colossians 4 verse 7, As to all my affairs, Paul says, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, he will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So there's communication. There, there, there's ambassadorship going on, personal visits, exchange of information, sharing in ministry, mutual encouragement and concern. I got to just say, you know, anybody who's been in the mission field, Western Union is not a really warm encouragement. I mean, you do get the money, usually, I think, but there isn't any love or concern or anything. It's not just sending money. We think if we just had more money, we need to invest more of ourselves, have more concern for our missionaries who are overseas, but to develop, strengthen that mutual bond. And uh, when the budget permits, if it permits, God willing, our, our budget as it changes, we should consider that. Every so often, sending a delegation or ambassadors on a short-term mission to check up on our missionaries in the field. How are they doing? We want to be here with you. What can we take back uh, to our congregation to encourage them? Um, which, it, again, translations nicely to my next point, uh, final point, actually, about global missions. When we look at the Bible, we're going to find that this, this principle in the Bible is very clearly communicated, very rarely executed in churches in America. Uh, on multiple occasions over the last couple of years, at least twice, maybe three times, 
I've brought to our attention this principle in Scripture. It is a broad command to have uh, compassion on impoverished churches around the world. To have compassion on Christians who have nothing. Very broad uh, principle in Scripture, very clear, however. And we find that Paul mentions relief to the saints in Romans 15. Uh, He also included there the regions of Macedonia and Achaia were going to participate in relief for the saints. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul sent the ambassador called Titus uh, uh, to Corinth to encourage them to follow this example of the Macedonians and to give to the poor at that time in Jerusalem. There are people without that need, and they are God's people. They are Christians. And and in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, this is a collection for other Christians, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so Galatia is also involved, so do you also, he's saying, you as well, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Interesting how we always apply this to church budget, isn't it? First day of the week, everybody's there prosper. Well, that's a good application. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about relief of others. doesn't say this went on for year after year after year. Yet nonetheless, he said, there's a season here that he's commanding them. And he says, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, involving the congregation with this, whomever you may approve as a delegation, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And he says, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So Paul's like, I might even go with them too. Depending upon how my schedule is. I'll go with. We'll carry this gift. We'll talk to the saints and we'll bring back news again. Jesus makes this same appeal in Matthew 25. This would be at the final judgment, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've asked you to read this in the past, if you remember. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 40, The king says to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Jesus is talking about Christians in this context, visiting the ones who were imprisoned for the gospel, visiting those who were sick, visiting those who who were uh, in troubles. Jesus says, to the extent you did it to these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. You did it to my body. Jesus said, "You, you, you ministered to me, taking care of the ones who didn't have. So when it comes to global missions, I don't know how a church can overlook the, the, the principle of relieving the suffering of the poorest of the poor of Christ's redeemed people abroad. I don't know how you can overlook that. Um, especially as wealthy as our country is. Maybe that's the reason we overlook it. I don't know. Um, and Paul put together a delegation to carry the gift. He said, if it's fitting for me, uh, I'll even go with you. The delegation will go together, and uh, not, not for a minute, because this question will come up, not for a minute do I believe this is exclusively for Jerusalem. 
just because that's where, you know, everything originated from the beginning, where Jesus, Jesus was crucified. He's not just talking about the church in Jerusalem because it's Jerusalem. The principle of generosity to the impoverished churches, it's presented much more broadly in Scripture than just one city at one point in time in history. It's a principle of generosity and love and compassion. That's what it is. And uh, in the future, we need to consider this. I've asked you in the past. Should the opportunity arise, Port St. Lucie Bible Church should prayerfully consider how we might identify, both identify and, and, and visit impoverished congregations or a group of congregations where we can send a delegation of our own ambassadors, short-term min- mission or longer, with a bountiful gift to relieve their suffering. It's something we should consider and pray about. Um, We'll get to know them. God willing, if that were to happen, they will pray for us. We will know who they are. They will know who we are. We will meet their need. And God will meet all of our needs. How would it look? I don't know. That's why we're praying. I don't know exactly how it would look. Um, I I do know that most of the financially suffering churches across the globe are also struggling theologically. A lot of them don't know what they believe. And they're Christ's precious redeemed, and, and they just don't have any leadership. I didn't have time to verify these numbers, but they are broadly uh, recognized in, in seminaries and Bible colleges across the country. It's very common knowledge that many pastors in Africa have no training at all. None. Zero. One website I looked at said this, In many African countries... Churches have an average of only one trained pastor for every 20 churches. A pastor from Uganda sitting next to me, this was at a conference, told us that his denomination has 1,000 congregations, but only eight trained pastors. Another one from the Evangelical Christian Church in Zambia told us that his denomination has 675 churches with only 31 trained pastors. What do you think that does to a congregation? Not having trained leadership. Ones who have not been able to go through the scriptures and, and learn proper theology. And uh, what, you say, well, what can we do about it? We're just poor St. Lucie Bible Church. What can we do? We can pray. We can begin to pray about what God might have us do. Uh, we can seriously pray about what God wants us to do. And, and as our debt is paid off at that point, uh, we could pray whether God would have us team up with a congregation somewhere, um, someplace, at some time, to relieve some of the suffering, uh, at least of one other congregation who has nothing? One maybe? I don't know. Something to pray about. Can we send a delegation to demonstrate to them that we care? We need to pray about where? I don't know where. I don't know where. Send who? Pastor Weiler. That's who we're sending. I'm not going, no. In a, in, in a practical sense, uh, being that we are a small church with limited resources, um, I would say it might be very nice if we could find a region that speaks English. It, it'd be nice. It'd be very helpful, right? If you're going to try and keep contact with other churches through Facebook and other things, that would be helpful. Um, I quickly scanned the most impoverished countries in the world and consistently in the bottom 
five, possibly bottom three. Some call it the poorest country in the world. Anybody know what it is? Close. It's too impoverishment anyhow. Um, Liberia. Sometimes ranked at the bottom, the, mo- the poorest uh, country in the world. Um, they also speak English. They are expatriate slaves that went back and resettled over in Africa. And uh, very impoverished. Uh, it says that they're 85% quote-unquote Christian. You know what I mean? They might have churches there and everything, but they need training. They need, uh, need people to reach out to them. So whether it's that, whether it's Haiti, place that speaks English would be beneficial to me. Can you imagine what God might do? If a partnership could be established to provide relief to the poor in such a country, can you imagine those countries that might benefit if we even took over a case of study Bibles in English that they could hand out to pastors where they could get some guidance theologically in what they're teaching? Um, The resources we could share with them in English, all that we have that we could take to them. Uh, How about having... Uh, them host a church conference and, and have some of our uh, men who are, who are better at teaching, women who are better at teaching, go over, teach a week-long conference. Share with them resources. Hand them study Bibles. What could we teach them? We need to pray. We need to pray. And we, I realize the timing is not today, yet um, these are people that Christ purchased with His blood. They are Christians. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they need help. They need help. I'm going to ask uh, the men to come forward so we can do communion, Lord's Supper. And um, as, as, we, as we pray today, you know, Scripture says that communion is a time, the Lord's Supper is a time of reflection upon yourself, a self-examination uh, of our sins. Usually there's more than enough to go around, myself included. And uh, as we reflect today on our sins, I, I would pray that we would not only repent of our sins of commission, what we do, that we would also focus on our sins of omission, what we have failed to do.